As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Uh, can I just say hello to uh, Charlie, yes. uh, who's started the email saying lovely fee, and that's not going to get round me. Do you want to hear a bit more of it? Okay. I'm not someone who ever writes into anything, ever, you but just I just have. have to write to you on this occasion to implore you to listen to Jane, two words though, I'm not reading those out, <laughs> about... The Archers. Oh, yes. I'm 38 years old and began listening to The Archers at 31 when my mum told me about the Rob Titchener storyline and the fact that The Archers was one of the first soaps, if not the first, to cover coercive control. I didn't know any... Oh, I bothered. So I know about the Rob storyline. Oh, and, and it's I very know important that, that, that they did it. Very important. And, everybody and it's did come it. back again, you see, as Absolutely well. Absolutely brilliant and all that kind of stuff. But it's like being vegan mm. or doing lots of running... You know, that's great if you're vegan and it's great if you really love running and you find yourself in the zone and you've got the sweet spot and your thighs never chafe and it's absolutely wonderful. That's great. I just don't want to do it. No. I think um, the arches is to you what succession is to me. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. We both have our little just little things that we just we just won't go there. I just and, and I think I did say this ages ago. I'm sorry, Charlie, it's not your fault at all. No. Um but I also feel with the archers it's been going on for such a long time. It's just like trying to, you know, climb Everest and expecting you can arrive, you know, at whatever it is. Not base camp, but three bases up. Is it just, just, like, just don't you can't know catch up? You yeah. don't know who anybody is. No, no I, there are still people in the archers, and I can't work out what their relation is to somebody else. So, and often the characters do use Christian names quite a lot, just so that new joiners can work out who's talking to. Who. Okay, so there's always a paragraph, isn't there, in uh, crime fiction books, isn't there, which attempts to explain the whole of the crime-fighting person or duo's history yeah. in one paragraph in order to welcome a new reader who doesn't understand all of it. <laughs> and as an old reader, you're just like, oh, God, that's really No, annoying. but you, you've got to think of people joining at book 12. Yes. So, for example, you know the Ellie Griffiths books that I've mentioned, yes. the ones about Dr. Ruth Galloway, the archaeologist? Yes. Um, there are, I think, 15 books in that series. And I, I do love the books. I genuinely find them a real source of comfort. But, yeah, there's, there's a bit <laughs> There's a bit of that going on because I haven't read all of them. So I sort of actually benefit from those those paragraphs that explain the significance of of the Druid yeah. and what he meant. by. So if everybody loves the archers, that's just yeah. fantastic. But if it's all right with everybody, I'm just not going to do it. All right. OK, but can we just go on? Because I got the impression that perhaps Charlie was going to mention that she'd been the victim of coercive control. Oh, my gosh. This is Fee reading everybody, a bit of a slow reader, but she gets there. 
Yes. No. No, she doesn't. Okay. No. Well, in that case, that's good. No. Okay. Right. Well, actually, let's. Um. Do you want to say anything else about that email? No. <laughs> No, but Charlie, it's lovely of you to get in touch, and it's delightful that you care. But yeah. I'm just—I feel, you know, you're just making me feel all right. Really all right, bad. all right. Um, I wanted to talk about a contraception because it came up on the program today. Because on the Times Radio show, which, by the way, you can hear if you're a listener to Off Air, you can just get the Times Radio app. It doesn't cost you anything, and then you can hear the live show three till five, Monday to Thursday. Uh, but this afternoon, we had a really interesting conversation with Ellie Cannon, the GP, not a doctor, doctor, um, about this Davina McCall documentary, which I appreciate. Neither of us have seen, but it's coming up later on this week, isn't it? It is, and we think from all of the preview stuff that we've read uh, that it will be quite headline-grabbing, and it's just hugely critical of where the contraceptive pill has been lying in female fertility health for a very long time. So not an enormous amount of research into the side effects it can cause in mm. some women, perhaps not enough done to allay the fears of any connection to increased risks of heart disease, blood clots or cancers in women. You know, all of those things that I think probably, uh, if you've been around as long as we have, you've grazed across mm. before. But there's a punch that is packed by a Davila McCall documentary, and I know you're a bit concerned about that. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know what I thought, but Ellie Cannon, who is a doctor, is concerned that in some cases, too much, just too much headline-grabbing airtime is given to, with the greatest respect to Davina, television presenters to make a case. In in this example, she's going to, I think, poss quite possibly discourage quite a chunk of the viewing public from taking the contraceptive pill, which may or may not be the right decision for them. We would do better to uh, alert all of our listeners to the possibility of watching the programme. I think that's talk a good about idea. It afterwards. Yeah, so uh, do talk, because, but then you mentioned on, on the programme about the male pill, and in fact, I'd totally forgotten again about the male pill, because on Woman's Hour, we would do that at least a couple of times a year, quite legitimately, by the way, discuss, has there been any progress on the male pill? No. Uh, and we're still at that position. Apparently, you say that there has been a male contraceptive pill developed. Well, I've been listening to a podcast, uh, which is really... Really interesting about the male contraceptive pill and right. the point being uh, that it it's all systems go on the male contraceptive pill but the stumbling block has been uh, in clinical trials a lot of the men taking it have complained about side effects oh bless them right you see in that you see instantly i go to that reaction and i shouldn't yeah because we do need to just have a sensible grown-up debate about this yeah but so that's what we were talking about on the program uh, and we would really, really like to talk about here it is how to be encouraging uh, about taking a pill that gives you side effects so that men can join in and, you know, share the responsibility of contraception without feeling, you know, we've had to put up with this for years and years and years, just get over yourselves, mm. you know, it's just a headache. You'll just put on weight. You'll just feel bloated. You'll just feel anxious. You'll just get depressed. But you won't just get pregnant. Just get all burst out. But you won't get pregnant. You know, so if, so it's hard not to go into that kind of tone. Uh, and, of course, I feel deeply sympathetic towards men who've been on a trial for a pill that's made them feel unwell. Yeah, I completely do. So yeah. I don't know what to say to them, uh, you know, to lessen their experience and, and make them think, well, 
you know, we'll be absolutely fine. We'll just, you know, we'll get over the migraines. I wonder whether, I mean, obviously women have more to lose or gain if they get pregnant. Let, let's be clear yeah. about that. There's more skin in the game for the female of the species, end of. If you get pregnant when you don't want to be, then you have to make a decision about that. If you get pregnant and you're delighted to be, how wonderful. But I have to tell you, there's a lifelong impact. <laughs> there really is, both positive and negative, of course. Uh, and it's just... We can't expect men to fully understand that, can we? No, but I think we can expect decent men to feel the responsibility of an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe not as much as us physically, maybe not as much as us mentally, mm. but possibly emotionally as well. So we should just, we shouldn't automatically assume that that's not how men are going to feel because I think that's unfair on really decent men mm. uh, and also gets not very decent men off the hook, actually, Jane. Yeah, and, so, and that. Yeah. I don't like that. No, I don't like that. But also, I think... Well, but also, I... couldn't you, if, if the alternative is going to be condoms, um, then, you know, surely you could actually try and enhance that argument about you don't have to faff around putting condoms on you know take responsibility for your own mm. fertility and wahey off you go i genuinely don't know because i do not hear as many conversations about the male pill as i do about the female pill. no there obviously are trust issues um do you believe the man who says he's on the pill and also then... But that's been there for women. Yes. Uh, then uh, we were talking on the programme too about the rise in gonorrhea and syphilis cases. So you still need to wear a condom if you want to protect against VD uh, with a new partner. So, uh, And I wonder whether the discomfort level is sort of built into women and girls because we've had periods. So you kind of... You've always got that three or four days out of every 28 for 40-odd years of your life where you're feeling a bit shit. And you just factor it in... And you're sort of 25 years in, you're kind of, you don't even question it anymore, do you? I mean, there are days when you feel livid about the whole thing, but it's just part of your experience. And men are not used to that level of faint or sometimes rather more than faint discomfort. I completely agree. And also, I think uh, we talk about things more and, mm. you know, sometimes just sharing your symptoms can take away the fear about them. Yeah. So you think, oh, OK, well, everybody's feeling a bit unwell taking the pill so I shouldn't worry about it so much and I'll just crack on and I'm not sure that men have as many conversations about contraception uh, but we would really really like to hear from men about this and if you yeah. are adjacent to a man uh, we'd love your thoughts as It'd be well. fantastic if you know any of the men who took part in the trials or indeed you are one of them. That would be brilliant. Because you never know because we do have an, a strange reach. <laughs> So, yeah, you, know, you just don't know. Anyway, um, that's sort of a topic we want to get onto over the next couple of days. So um, make sure, and we will watch it, both of us will watch the programme on Channel 4. I think it's Thursday night, actually. Uh, so we'll see what um, impact that has. Yep. It's rather and professionally done. I, I think that was very, very, very good. And I did love it when you said VD, because that just took me straight back to a previous era. Because nobody says VD anymore. Well, you see, the reason I think I do is because I, I was, as a teenager, almost too knowledgeable about this subject because my mother was a clerk in the VD clinic. So I've mentioned this before, yes. but she would. She, I, I knew too much. Let's put it that way. OK, well, let's, I was gonna say, let's stick with VD, but maybe let's, let's not stick with VD. What a silly thing to say. Uh, right, this one comes from... 
Oh, no, there was a very, very... There was a funny one that I wanted to go to. Well, can to. I just do this from Pauline? Hello, yes. Pauline. Um, I've just come back from a month in Japan, says Pauline, uh, and it's such a shock to be home because we've got builders on our street, as I have next door, and our days have been filled with unnecessary vocal decibels, says Pauline. It, after Japan, after that beautiful month, it's just a shock and it's so grating. The Japanese are so quiet. Trains are silent. Cafes are quiet. And even the non-tourist streets of Tokyo are soothing and gentle. Being perimenopausal, my tolerance for noise, especially noise that's just pollution, is zero. It was heaven being in Japan. I loved it. There we are. Well, I'm glad you're home safe and sound, Pauline. And I'm sorry about the racket. Uh, this one is from Patricia, who's listening to us in Kendall. Uh, childhood memories just surfaced listening to you. I was very keen for my Cindy doll to have a boyfriend, but I didn't like Paul. Was that his name? I don't know. Oh, I don't remember him. I was too young to explain why or to have learnt any words like effeminate, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Having seen the ads, I persuaded Mum to get me Action Man for his hunky, rugged facial looks. However, as soon as he revealed what lay beneath those combats, I was revolted. All of those horrible joints, and wait for it, as for those feet it's not what you expected. No, well, was it? no, I guess I thought we were going straight to the, you know, pulled his trousers off, and then we all did that, didn't we? We, we all first did that mentally. Yep. Yeah. Well, no, really, I did. And physically. Yeah. No, so his feet. I don't know anything about Action Man's feet at all, but maybe if someone's still got an Action Man, they could send us a picture. Maybe he just had kind of moulded feet. Maybe he didn't have Webbed. individual toes. Oh, my goodness. So I was going home on the tube last night, Jane, uh, and there was a guy... Woman of the people Very again. much so, very much so. Look at my Oyster card. Um, there was a guy wearing I'll be those... going to free travel soon. You will get your freedom yeah. pass, won't you? Anyway, yeah. can I just get to the end of yeah, the story? Yes, sorry. sorry. Then it'll be back to you, don't worry. <laughs> there was a guy wearing those really, really weird kind of trainer socks, you know, where they have individual the toes and then a kind of, you know, a plastic surface underneath oh it my just God. made me feel physically repulsed no that's disgusting and at this time of year as well yes and no shoes no so those are shoes oh, so they're so I, i've seen the kind of cloven hoof ones you know where you have a separated big toe and then the rest of your toes are encased in one great big toe mm. but this was individual toes in a sneaker sock Ooh. oh didn't work here did he well, he may well have been actually in front of me leaving the News UK building. Oh, no. And okay. I'll tell you what, that is the ultimate form of contraception. I don't think I'm <laughs> getting near that. <laughs> anyway, sorry, back to you. When does the Freedom Pass kick in and will you use it proudly? Oh, yeah. God, for free? Travel? Be brilliant, actually. Well, not for another year, but um, but it's just a, it's one of the many benefits. And I think we've said it before, but London public transport, now it doesn't apply in the rest of the UK, is just brilliant. I mean, it's so well. It, it works together. Um, it's quite slick. Uh, obviously, there's engineering work most weekends, but it's it's amazingly easy to get across a huge metropolis. It is in quite short order. So I don't want to show off here, um, but uh, I got off a plane last weekend when I was on my magical mini break. A plane, everybody. Yep. All right, Judith Chalmers, get on with it. Went to Barcelona. I got off the plane from Barcelona at quarter to twelve, and I was back home in Dalston, East London, at one o'clock. 
Good. Well, for people who don't know that distance... Was that the Elizabeth Line? It's the Lizzie Line. So yeah. that is crossing the whole of London, yeah. right the way from very, very far in the west to very, very far in the east. Marvelous. No, it's a real... It's just... And I thought exactly that. I thought, what a brilliant, brilliant city. This is moving and working mm. and the cogs are all whirring mm-hmm. together. It was astonishing. So I was thinking, you know, when you're on the underground and um, you're sort of, you, idiotically, you look at the stations, even though you must know them almost oh, off I by heart. I love doing that. You just follow it. It's, just, it's soporific. It's quite pleasant. Um, but when you look at the lines, only two are named after people. So the Elizabeth line yeah, and, and... Come on, it's not difficult. And I'd sometimes I can have okay. endless blanks. A- another monarch? Victoria line. There we are. Uh, but, and there aren't any more named after people, are there? Oh, let me just run through this we in my head. We haven't got a George or an Alfred the Great. or No, and there was no Dr District, was there? <laughs> well, there was, actually. <laughs> was there? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Pick Adilly. No. He wasn't a real fella. Jude Illy. <laughs> no, OK, right. Um, so, there aren't any. No. No, it's weird. It's, it's weird. an interesting trivia question. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> I don't think it is that interesting. No. I love the map that you can buy that shows you where the tube tunnels actually go. Oh. It's really, really brilliant. I will try and buy you one, actually, for uh, one of your many, many birthdays. Would you like it for your actual birthday or your official birthday? You choose. <laughs> official, please. So it's got the tube stations on top and the way that we see the tube map, as it's always been drawn, mm. but then it actually does where the tunnels are underneath. So between some of the stations that are only a quarter of a mile overground, mm. the tube, actual tube tunnel is about three quarters of a mile long. It's fascinating. You'll love it. Okay, thank you. Um, An appalling joke from uh, Stuart. Uh, When it saw the penicillin approaching... You've got to read the title of the email. What did the bug say when it saw the penicillin approaching? I don't know. What did the bug say when it saw the penicillin approaching? Stuart, I've ruined your guy. I'm a goner here. (laughs) Very good. That's part of our many, many, many VD jokes that we're storing up for later. Uh, and I'd just like to commiserate uh, with, I think you're, no, what do you think that is? You're either L. Ivy or Livy. L. Ivy, I think. L. Ivy. Blue oh. Ivy is Beyonce's daughter, isn't she? Oh, that'd okay. be a relative. Uh, dear Joan Fee, listening during the night to the lady who ordered wrong size underwear, recently noticed some small bits of plastic missing from my old baking spatula. So I thought I should buy a replacement, found the perfect one on eBay. This is it. It raised a laugh. So, uh, L. Ivy has included a little picture of a tiny teaspoon and the spatula is about the same size as the tiny <laughs> teaspoon. It's probably a doll's one. But she said it's very, very good for getting the last dregs out of a pot of yoghurt. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because you do sometimes have to really delve in those crevices, don't you? You do. I can't stand waste. Actually, one of my questions at home last night was, and I really can't believe I'm asking this, navels. <laughs> oh, no. No, not... Yeah, well, I am going to go there. Okay. Why can they be so smelly? Oh, Jane. Well, I'm just... Uh, I know, sorry. And there, But we do have medical people who are listening. So if you haven't got anything to say about the future of contraception, you can weigh in on this one. I suppose it's just... Well... It's a place where sweat and fluff can gather. Yes, and I don't... I don't think... <laughs> do horrible things. I don't think most people really give it a good clean out, do they? One day to the next. I don't think so. But I wonder what, I mean, because we know that you can't use earbuds in your ears. Would Do you think a... you can use an earbud in your, if, well, if you've got an innie, I suppose you can. Mm. Do you get, do you still get 
smelly navels if you've got an outie. Jane and V at Times Talk Radio. Right, this is from Sophia. Um, writing to you from a tiny island in the Caribbean. Now, I, I don't think I know how to pronounce this. I'm going to have a go. Karyaku? Karyaku. Karyaku. Have you any idea? Karakau. Karakau, it could be that. Um, Sophia is much blessed. She has a very nearly four-year-old daughter. But when she was a baby, most people were extremely concerned about my lack of attention to her headgear, or lack thereof. My mother-in-law was really concerned when we were out in the dark with no hat to protect her sensitive head from the cool breeze. I should say at this point that the temperature here rarely drops below 27 Celsius, even at night. More than once I was told that her head was because I bring her out... I was told her cold was because I'd take her out at night with no hat and the cool breeze <laughs> blows through the soft part of her head, giving her the virus. <laughs> Dear. Then in the daytime, somebody would shout, Where's her hat? The sun's hot. Normally, after I'd picked up the hat for the tenth time and given up trying to wrestle it onto a small child. By the way, here, you can currently buy a multi-pack of twirls in the supermarket. <laughs> it's... A five-pack, so two for me and one each for three kids, as long as I eat my share while they're at school so they don't realise I get double. She's absolutely sorted, isn't she? She's yeah. really working that motherhood thing. Well, I think Thank the secret, you. actually, of sane motherhood uh, is sometimes to absolutely help yourself before you help your kids. And I don't say that in a kind of, all you know, be really selfish no. way. But there's such a kind of trope of uh, the martyrdom of motherhood. Yeah. And actually, I think it just works a bit better if you keep eating two twirls first. No, I mean, there are massive benefits to, to motherhood generally. <laughs> and one is you can eat a load of crap that they don't know you've got because you've bought it on the pretext of giving it to them. Yes, please don't finish your plate of food because I'm quite hungry, darling. Pass it over here. Uh, shall we talk about Diana Evans being one of Britain's most acclaimed novelists? Yes, she's our guest this afternoon. And um, I was saying, I mean, we do get a really interesting range of writers. I mean, Fee and I both love books. We love reading. And that's one of the reasons we want to talk to lots of different writers. And tomorrow, uh, the author we're talking to is... Satnam Sangera. Yeah, and he's written a non-fiction history book for young people about the stolen history and it's about the british empire it certainly is and then thursday's big guest is judy murray who's written a novel about tennis uh, you'll be amazed to hear it's called wild card um so i think that gives you some idea of the, of the range we're getting out and, and diana evans um is well she's a li i suppose she's a literally no she's literally a literary novelist she's a literary writer isn't she Yes, she writes. Yeah, although I think her novels are very readable. No, they sometimes are readable. the term literary can mean I can put people off. Yeah. But she's—I suppose—I'm trying not to say a proper writer, but that is what she is. Well, that's a bit rude to our other guests on this week. Yeah. If that's what pretend you're you saying, have, pretend you haven't heard that. <laughs> okay. Particularly you, Satnam and Judy. Right. Uh, so Diana's books often in in the background to them, they sort of incorporate references to um, national events. And her book 26A uh, talked about the marriage of Charles and Diana and then actually the death of Diana as well. Ordinary People started with a party marking the election of Barack Obama and her most recent book is A House for Alice, which takes place in London in the summer of 2017 and starts on the night of the dreadful Grenfell fire. Now, Alice, the central character, is an elderly Nigerian woman who basically wants to go home, but her family are really split about whether she should do that. We asked Diana why she often references topical events. Well, I write novels that are essentially about ordinary people living their lives, their everyday lives. 
And there is always a political backdrop to our everyday experiences, particularly now. Politics bears ever more heavily on our lives, economically, socially, psychologically as well. So I feel that it's just important to reflect that in order to create an accurate picture. And then when there are certain events that happen that are particularly traumatic, such as the Grenfell fire, I, I feel a personal responsibility as a writer, as an artist, as a writer who writes a lot about London um, and understands the London community, the, the Black British London community. I just feel that I have to and I can't, it would be very remiss of me not to have paid some kind of homage to Grenfell. Well, we are approaching another anniversary of Grenfell, actually, aren't we? And it, it struck me, I go past it every day on the tube, and it is still there, the tower. And I don't know, I, I looked up yesterday, what, what is the latest on what's going to happen? And nobody nobody seems to know. Do you have a view on what should happen? Well, I well there are um, talks about dismantling the tower, so there would be no reminder there. And I, I'm in two minds about that. I think there should be some kind of monument there. I, I agree, though, it is particularly traumatic for the community to to be living with that big um, structure around the, just there all the time. That must be difficult, but I think there has to be some kind of reminder. Um, as far as the inquiry goes, that is still not concluded. It's supposed to be being concluded later on this year. And that will give us some kind of clarity as to whether there's going to be any corporate accountability. Because so far, it feels like it's been kind of, um, you know, dismissed a little bit. Uh, there hasn't been enough attention um, applied by the government to the um, reparative um, period after the fire, you know, um, given the victims of the fire, people who've lost family members, people who've been injured personally, um, enough support, I don't think there has been enough support. And I think that lack of attention is, is almost like a double trauma, it's an added trauma. I think there, need, there needs to be some kind of corporate accountability for for what happened, because the Grenfell Tower had been refurbished, but um, in a much cheaper way than it could have been, which led to the, the use of that combustible cladding. And I do think that somebody has to be held responsible. There's lots of kind of passing the block and somebody has to step up. I think the opening to this novel where you write about what happened at Grenfell that night is one of the most arresting openings to a novel that I have read. I had to wait a little bit after I read all of those passages before going on with the book because it is so traumatic. And I wonder actually how you write that as a novelist. You know, at what point after the Grenfell night did you think, I can actually put something on paper? It took a long time, actually, because uh, I believe with events like this, a certain amount of time has to pass to let the dust settle, in this case, let the ashes settle. It was about maybe three or four years later that I started trying to write about it. It was very, very difficult, I have to admit. And um, I really battled with my myself in terms of whether I uh, I have the right to try and depict what happened at Grenfell, whether it really belongs in a piece of fiction. Um, 
whether that's even kind of possible for it to feature in a story without it completely taking over the narrative. So there were all those kinds of doubts um, that I was grappling with. But um, at the same time, I just felt this absolute compulsion to that I had to at least try. I think um, a, a lot of the experience of writing is facing your own weakness and really testing yourself and taking risks. And it did feel like a huge risk. But one that was uh, was that was worth taking. We should say that although Grenfell is part of the book, it um, is not the centre of the of the narrative. It's there in in the background, but hugely important. Uh, there is a fire though, which kills uh, an elderly man called Cornelius and Alice, who is the um, the character in A House for Alice, which is the central character, is his estranged wife. Um, now. Tell me a bit about Alice, because I, I know you said that you really think it's important that women like her get their moment, are actually honoured in fiction. Yeah, Alice is um, an elderly Nigerian woman, and she has this deep desire to to return home to her homeland, and she's lived in London for 50 years. And she's the, the kind of character that we just never really see depicted in our contemporary British fiction. That felt important to give that kind of character of a voice, you know, and to put her really centre stage. And so sometimes the prose, it kind of lapses into Alice's actual voice. The voice, the prose becomes a little bit broken in the way that Alice's voice is broken English, the way she speaks. That felt very satisfying to to be able to do that. But it's also about her family and um, the wider context of what this wish, the impact of it on the rest of her family, her three daughters who have differing opinions about this wish of hers to return home after Cornelius's death. So her yearning is really kind of, it's a frame for the book, yeah. really. And it's a frame for also other yearnings that the other characters have. And that marks a return, doesn't it, to some characters that people who've read your earlier novel, Ordinary People, would recognise. Uh, I did read somewhere that you felt, so Michael and Melissa are really integral to Ordinary People, you felt that they never left you. And I'm always intrigued by that notion of a novelist who creates characters so strong in their mind that even after you finished writing their story, they call to you. And is that what happened with these two? It's more that they call to each other, that they continue talking, their conversations carry on. I don't really go in for that idea of... Um, characters kind of pulling the author along and and um, navigating the author through a story and telling them what to do. It's more that, that you're almost inside your, your characters. When you're writing them, you, you kind of inhabit them so so deeply that they come, you just become very intimate with them, that you can hear their voices. And so after I'd finished writing Ordinary People, which was a very difficult book to write, it took me seven years, and I thought that I never wanted to return to that world again. I was just glad to see the back of it. But then after a, a couple of years, I could just hear um, Michael and Melissa's conversations, and, and I could hear Michael's wife, Nicole, who is a new character in the story. She's like this ageing singer. She's very she's a very alive character and I could hear her voice particularly strongly and um, that's when I realised that there was a there was a triangle to explore between Nicole, Michael and Melissa and that that could somehow work alongside um, the story of Alice and her wish. I think anybody with a sibling will be able to relate to particularly to A House for Alice because 
Alice's three daughters have different views about whether or not their very elderly mother should return to Nigeria. Um, uh, one is you know, reasonably accepting, one is absolutely dead against it, and another one is all for it. Uh, and um, I mean, I've only got one sibling, but I can imagine that these things are very real. That 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 seemed to me to be entirely plausible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what happens in families sometimes is that, is that there's this certain configuration. Um, in in the case of this family, um, there's a configuration that has kind of been set by Cornelius and and once the he, father, yeah, yeah. And then once he's he's gone, there's this kind of flailing around of dynamics and relationships. Alice is kind of a, she is a site of home for her daughters, even though she herself feels adrift, that she's never really integrated or felt at home. At the same time, for her daughters, she is the place where they know exactly who they are. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I asked Diana if she knows just how many people, very elderly people, do move back to countries like Nigeria, places which they still consider to be their real home. I, I don't know, but um, it is common for immigrants to come over to the UK with the intention of always going home and for that intention to then fall away because it's impractical or it's too difficult. It definitely does happen, but sometimes there's a situation where you know, you go back and it's not the same as what you left. Mm. Um, there's this idea of does it really exist, that the fantasy Alice is yearning, is it a fantasy? Does it actually exist? If she did actually go back and live in Nigeria, would she get what she was looking for? How old are you now, if that's not too personal? How old question? Yes. I'm 51. 51. Do you enjoy uh, trying to imagine a much older person's thought processes and desires because it's very very comforting to read actually and and I don't think that a much younger novelist would be able to convey those quite different ways of looking at the world and thinking about the world if that makes sense 
I mean, perhaps, you know, I'm wrong. And, you know, right from your late teens and early 20s, you could imagine yourself in much older heads. Well, I I can imagine myself in heads of all ages, really. And but it's easy to go back, isn't it? Because you can write about youth because you've been there, but you can't write about what happens ahead of us. The job of writing fiction is being able to inhabit characters who are different from your own. There is a, a satisfaction in doing that departure from the self and being in somebody else's head and someone else's perspective. I did do um, research as to the, the kind of everyday lives and the infrastructure of the elderly, which was quite fascinating. And, you know, I came across things like um, elderly communities who organise things like bench-to-bench walks, uh, sort of tea sessions in cafes where they can um, commune in cafes that are kind of along the walks so they're, they're accessible. And paving slabs, trying to get the council to fix Paving slabs that are uneven, so so they're not so easy to trip over. Um, another good one is is traffic lights and trying to get them to extend the walk across times at traffic lights. And I found that research really interesting in the way it really just opens up your perspective of how somebody else lives. In um, ordinary people, you, there there are two couples at the centre of that book, and and they are at the I think it's fair to say the gloss has has just worn off a little bit. I mean, there are young kids in the mix. Uh, and real life has got involved. Romance isn't all that central to their existence. And and you do get to the stage in life where you do have to have conversations with people about sheets. And, and, and it's boring. It is really boring, but it's the stuff of life. You don't actually read it that often, but there is stuff like that in Ordinary People. Yeah, there is. There is a lot of stuff like that in, in The House for Alice as well. And I think there aren't as many books that focus on... The aftermath of, of romance mm. and you know the actuality of married life um when when the gloss kind of dissipates and uh, but you know I think that is the real test of of love whether you can whether you can get through that aftermath and what is it, what is it that you have at, at the end of it when you get to the other side you know there was this uh, metaphor the river mm. in ordinary people for me that was a metaphor for for love as well you know can a couple get to the other side of um, the river that has all this kind of murk and and messiness and the messiness of everyday life and the ugliness of it really because you do see you know the ugliness of somebody when you live with them 24 7 you know that kind of sheen of beauty and it dissipates and you have to kind of look that actual person in the face and if you can get across the river then that means that you've you've kind of survived and it is a it is a true love I do believe in true love do you? No, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. I, I'd love. To, I know you come from a family. I think you've got, got quite a number of siblings, haven't you? So yeah, five sisters. So you observe family life so astutely. Are your family now a bit wary about what they say to you? Do they think, oh, I'm not telling Diana about this, or because she's going to stick it in the next book? They probably are actually, but um, have you been uninvited family gatherings recently? <laughs> I think I think it's a difficult thing to have a writer in the family. Well, especially of, of the kind that I am, especially yes, and with a keen eye for detail. Yeah. <laughs> and I I do tend to draw from life, um, but you know I use the reality to get into the room of fiction, and then I can bend it and twist it. But I am very very drawn by kind of real conversations and real moments and I have a, a deep desire to get them to depict them in some way and make them alive in a, in a story. Yeah my family are very are actually very accepting of my work. They do see a separation between my books and real life. And are you a slightly different person when you are 
right in the, the the kind of the sweet spot of writing? Does it really take over everything that you're doing? Yes, it does. Yeah, it's it's a bit like being on drugs when I'm really deep into it. It's it's absolutely thrilling. It's also very difficult to get to that point where where you're completely immersed in it. There's a lot of will to procrastinate and put it off because it's so writing's so difficult. Novels are so hard. What's the strangest thing that you've done because you've been putting off sitting down to write the book? Have you cleaned the top of your skirting boards? instead of sitting down to write? I haven't, but I have framed um, pictures. That's something that I do. I've made like a, um, a postcard collage. I remember doing that once all day because I couldn't say for writing. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of bits and bobs around the house, bits of like DIY, which I hate, hate DIY, but I find myself, you know, um, knocking nails into walls. Well, it's a solid achievement, that. isn't it? That's fantastic. That's quite satisfying. Yeah. Um, just a brief word on the possibility of this being a trilogy, because you have hinted that you haven't actually completely fallen out of love with some of the characters in this book. So are they all going to go into the third one? And is there going to be one? I, I feel like they might, but I don't want to say that for definite because that would be bad luck. But I but I feel like there is more um, there is more exploring that I want to do with this set of characters. Okay, and right until the end, I didn't know whether Alice was going to go or stay. And for what it's worth, Diana, I think she's made the wrong move. But anyway, uh, I do. Um, (laughs) No spoilers. No spoilers. Um, And I mean, the fact that I I read at university because I had to, not because I wanted to, uh, John Updike's Rabbit trilogy, I thought it was bloody awful. (laughs) And now I discover that actually you you rate John Updike. I'm afraid I do. Yes, I do. He's... um... There's something about his writing that seems to speak to my own. Um, this desire to, as as he puts it, to give the everyday as beautiful to you. Um, I love the poetry in his writing and the attention to language. Uh, and so sometimes I do read it to kind of unlock something in my own writing or loosen me up. Obviously, I have problems with his politics. His writing is extremely misogynistic, chauvinist and racist. Um, but apart from that. But apart from that. <laughs> There's something, you know. There's there's something in if there's um, something in in a voice that speaks to me, then. Um, and sometimes it's good to read stuff that provokes, isn't it? And I know that you said that about uh, Revolutionary Road, Richard Yates' novel, which I think you don't love it, but you enjoy the concepts and fighting a little bit against. Yeah, those. I I, th- I feel like sometimes I am writing in retaliation against invisibilities. That there's there's a lot of gaps in fiction that uh, that I want to fill. There's there's this huge gap of the um, the everyday lives of um, Black British people. You know, I think that's really important to the bit and to show the world from a different perspective from the white mainstream. So yeah, it's about answering back to writers where you found something in the work remiss or felt that you could do it better. That was Diana Evans, and her book is A House for Alice. So we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Do feel free to spread the word if you enjoy this. Uh, I think you can rate and review it at the place of your choosing, wherever you get your podcasts from. And as Jane said, you can download the Times app and then you can listen to the on-air radio programme and also some really fantastic programmes from our colleagues as well. Let's not forget them, Jane, darling. Who? Colleagues. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Uh, no, it's all fabulous. Um, yes, do make sure you do all that. And your other homework is to catch that Davina McCall contraception programme and then pitch in. And actually, it might very well be, because Fee and I were talking about the pill earlier. Um, I think I took it for, God, I can't remember how many years. I don't remember having any problems with it, but I might just have imagined that i don't know um but it isn't always true of every woman that's for sure and maybe it's just one of those medications that simply it doesn't suit every type of individual and you've got to keep going back until you found the right one well i think that's many many people's experience of it uh, so we would welcome your individual thoughts and uh, if you've got a bloke that you want to shove this podcast in the ears of who might be able to contribute to a conversation about the male contraceptive pill, uh, that'd be great, actually. That'd be really good. And remember, if you want your kiddie to go to Harvard, you've got to keep breastfeeding until they're 15. OK, Dr Garvey says so. Have a good evening. You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man. It's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week, and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.